Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. It's our first show of the year and I hope you haven't forgotten us, but even if you have and you've never heard of the show before, it's available on the Financial Mail online platform and on the Apple and Spotify podcast apps as well. My guest today is Simon Mundy. If you think you've heard the name before, you may even have met him. He lived and worked in Johannesburg a decade or more ago, including a wonderful spell on business day when I was its editor. He was then and remains a quite extraordinary reporter. He left Johannesburg to join the Financial Times in London. They sent him off to Seoul and South Korea, a big story for the FT, and then on to India, an even bigger FT story. And then he did something remarkable. He resigned and set off on a journey to record for himself and anyone who followed him on social media how climate change was changing the world. It took him at least three years, and the book he wrote at the end, Race for Tomorrow, published by William Collins, came out late last year. I read it on holiday in Transkei, and I swear if I had the money, I'd buy a thousand copies and give them to the people I most cherish and value. Race for Tomorrow is magnificent for two reasons. First, Simon captures the whole of climate change. It's a difficult thing to get your head around, the damage and the promise and the detail. It's just amazing. Second, he somehow manages never to insert himself into the narrative. Instead, he allows desperate farmers, anxious miners, rich developers, and obsessed techies to talk for themselves. It's a book for the ages, and you just have to read it. Simon Mundy joins us today from London, where the FT was kind enough to take him back, and he's now its moral money editor. Simon, many congratulations on the book, and it's such a gripping read. And I want to ask you, and I've thought about this, and it's probably inadequate, but the best all-encompassing question about climate change that I can, and it's this, in your travels and in your many meetings, is there one thing that stands out that convinced you more than anything else that climate change is real, is happening, that it's going to affect everything, and that it's man-made? Thank you so much, Peter. Yeah, there were so many conversations, as you say, that I had that really brought home to me the urgency and the power of this struggle that we're in. Fundamentally, though, this comes down to science. What convinces me of the the severity of the climate threat is the enormous weight of scientific research that we have along those lines. Um, and there was one particular person that I met during my travels who was one of the, the foremost scientists, foremost climate scientists in the world, and a really extraordinary person in, in many other ways. His name was Conrad Steffen. And I met him in Greenland. We met in a, in a village called Ilulisat on the, the west coast of, of Greenland. And this was to be the penultimate year of three decades that he had spent on the ice sheet of Greenland, studying what was happening up there. He'd gone up there in about 1990. And really, he wasn't going up there to study climate change. He was simply going there to study what, the, how, how the ice sheet behaved. Um, but what he noticed over the years and decades that followed was that something was happening up there that was completely outside the models, the accepted models of how... Uh, ice sheets responded 
to temperature changes. By then, it was already seen that the temperatures were changing, but it was thought that the ice sheets responded to these temperature changes over decades or centuries. But what he realized was that the ice was melting and shifting at a speed far greater than anyone had realized. He he did this through incredibly dedicated research. He he lived out there for, for weeks and weeks at a time out on the ice sheet every year. He he built a camp on stilts on on the ice. Um and it was dangerous work. The as the ice moved and stretched, there were enormous crevasses opening within it. And and he told me how dangerous it was getting. And a few days after we met, when he, he was up on the ice sheet, his life was taken by one of those, those crevasses. And it, it, it's an extraordinarily um, harrowing story in some ways, but also what an inspiring contribution he made. He provided so much scientific work in his own right. And also he he fostered this new generation of climate scientists. There are scientists all over the world now who he trained and nurtured, who are contributing um, powerful work of, of their own. And so his story ultimately doesn't have to be a sad story if we focus on the incredible contribution that he made. And the real point for me is that we have this incredible weight of scientific evidence. We can see all over the world what's happening. And the the onus now is on us as a global community to act on the incredible contribution of people like Conrad Stefan and make sure that that amazing work, that we're so lucky to have all this modern scientific evidence to make sure it doesn't go to waste. He, in fact, if I remember correctly in the book, he dies a few days after you last spoke to him. That's right. We we met the day before he was going up yeah. onto the ice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was approaching retirement age. It was going to be his, his second last journey onto the ice. And and very, very shortly after that, um, he was walking on the ice and fell into it. Do you finish the book in any way optimistic that having caused it, humans can fix it? Absolutely. The the potential is there. There, there, is, there is nothing set in stone about the crisis that we're facing. It's very serious. There, there are many people who have already been losing their lives. So, so one of the things that really um, my travels brought home to me is the incredible severity of the threat that we face. But also, on the other hand, there are certain ways in which my travels made me more optimistic or certainly more hopeful, more conscious of the extraordinary potential that we have to address this. So one of the things, um, one of the key things, perhaps the most important thing is the extraordinary technology that is already being developed to tackle this. So in the book, as you know, the the range of of technology that I was able to to cover, these extraordinary entrepreneurs right across the world they are coming up with things that if we can deploy, if we can deploy these things with the requisite speed and scale, we can really address these problems at, at an enormous scale. And, and, and we really can hold, hold back temperatures from rising very much further. 
But those technologies are not yet being deployed at the scale they need to be. But you start out, as you say, you start in, in the sort of Arctic. You're in Siberia and you're in Greenland. And, and what was amazing to me was just the scale of the geopolitical change that climate change can bring. Um, when, you wrote, when you write about you know, a ship carrying cargo, say, from Rotterdam to Shanghai, um, instead of having to sort of make its way around the Iberian Peninsula and through the Mediterranean, down through the Suez Canal, around India, it'll basically just be able to travel via the north, via the sort of uh, on top of Russia, basically. Um, and it'll shorten that route significantly and change, change global power in ways that we can't imagine, really. I mean, I can't really get my head around it, other than it'll be possible to get to Shanghai from Rotterdam in a ship a lot quicker in 10 years' time than it is now. That's right. And people have already started doing this. Mask, the enormous shipping company, has already sent a container ship through this northern sea route um, from yeah. Korea to the Netherlands. Um, and it did it much more quickly than could have been done by going through Suez. So it's it's already starting to happen. Now, it's still not happening on a huge scale because there is still a fair amount of ice in, in the Arctic, even in, in summer. Sure. So you still need to have these, these ships being accompanied by an icebreaker in most cases. But if you look at how Vladimir Putin is approaching this, he yeah. now he he's someone who at times has poured cold water on the idea that climate change is a real thing. But if you look at what he's actually doing, it's very clear that he knows that climate change is real because he's told his uh, his people to achieve an enormous expansion of shipping on that northern sea route in response. Building new ports. Shrinking ice, yeah. building new ports, one of which I visited on the Arctic coast, Tixi. So Tixi was built under the Soviets in the early days of the Soviet Union. And there was no nothing of what we would really call economic logic for it. It was more to do with this strategic desire to develop the Far East of Russia. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, Tixi really started going into a severe decline because there was no particular reason for ships to go all the way up there. But now, when I visited there, the head of the port was on fine form. He was really excited about the prospects for his city. He said, we're going to have more and more ships coming back here. This is going to be situated on a major shipping route because of climate change. So it's not just Putin and Moscow. On the ground, people are getting really excited about the positive impacts of, of climate change for some of these places. And, and there is, even though obviously, in general, the, the overall effects of climate change for the world, there'll, there'll be so many more negative ones than positive ones. But there are also some people, including also the mammoth tusk hunters who I met in Siberia, there are people who are spotting opportunities here as well. I'm sure. And just staying, staying in the Arctic, back to Greenland, as that ice melts, um, uh, and as you discover, um, there are minerals in the earth under the ice um, and potentially a lot of minerals. Also possible um, game changes in geopolitics. I mean, America, didn't Donald Trump try to buy Greenland from Denmark not so long ago? I mean, and I'm sure Denmark will have its own reasons for perhaps slowing down the pace at which it wants to give, you know, some sort of degree of self-rule to the Greenlanders. Um, it's potentially a huge amount of mineral wealth under under that ice. 
that's absolutely right. If you look at the prospecting work that's been done in Greenland, there are enormous amounts of, of mineral deposits, but the problem is for very many of them, it's very difficult to reach them because of all that sea ice. So I had, I, had, I spent several weeks in Greenland and met all sorts of different people, but two rather contrasting um, angles that I want to highlight, which really go to the tensions that can be thrown up by climate change. In the far northwest of, of Greenland, I spent time in Karnak, which is the main settlement of the Inuguit people there, the northernmost ancient civilization on Earth. They crossed about a thousand years ago from Canada on dog sleds. And they've been hunting on dog sleds for, for all that time. That's been the, the center of their culture. But increasingly, that ancient way of life is being threatened by the, the retreat of that sea ice. And near their community, there is now a new potential economic growth driver for that area, which is a new mine that's being set up by a small cap London-listed mining company, um, which I, I spoke to the CEO of that company, and he told me, yeah, you know, th this would have been impossible just 10, 15 years ago. But now, because the sea ice season is getting shorter, we have enough time to actually get in and out with our, our ships, our boats, and get, and get the minerals out. So when I spoke to the mining minister of Greenland down in the capital, Nuuk, Nuuk is a, what would elsewhere be called a village of about 12,000 people, but in Greenland it's the capital city. I mean, the, the whole Greenland um, population could fit inside a largest football stadium. And the minister said, yeah, look, culturally, the disappearing ice is a disaster, but economically, it will be very, very helpful. And this is, this is one of the dilemmas that, that various um, countries are, are facing. And for Greenland, Greenland is going to be a very, very different sort of country um, as a result of these yeah. changes. But they're, they're lucky, at least, in the sense that they, Greenland, as I imagine, are, is a fairly sort of egalitarian society. And, and I doubt whether there are many, you know, the disparities between wealth might not be what they are in, say, like South Africa or wherever it might be. But so you go, you go to Lagos in Nigeria, uh, where a wealthy family is now building a huge new development um, um, uh, designed to actually lift the, the um, to lift that part of Lagos um, above what it assumes the new water line might be in 50 or 60 or 100 years' time. Um, uh, a sort of, a kind of almost like a, you know these movies where you where you load a certain number of elites onto us onto a spaceship and fly them out you know just before the world gets taken over by the water um so a, a nigerian elite will move to this island i can't remember was it echo atlantic i can't echo remember atlantic, what the name that's was. Right. yeah um and uh and and the millions of poor will have to just stay where they are and do their best as the water um rises above their roofs or their verandas or their kitchens or whatever it's going to do. Simon, just what was there any sense when you were in Lagos that building that area, that safe area for rich people, was a good was a was a problematic thing? Yeah, so this was a really interesting part of my research. Lagos 
is very vulnerable. It's it's built on this this coastline that has always had this sort of movement of of silt and this erosion over That's the right. years. Um, and what was happening was this part of Lagos called Victoria Island, which is really the commercial hub and the sort of most upmarket part, or certainly one of the most upmarket parts of the city was getting worse and worse um, impacts from this. It was getting really badly eroded. And so the Shaguri family, who have been notorious in many quarters since the age of Sunny Abacha, who, of course, was this deeply kleptocratic leader of, of Nigeria yeah. um, back about three decades ago, um, who was very close to the Shaguri family, they now seem to have seen a, a shot at redemption. Um, through building a project that would protect Lagos from the impacts of this erosion, the worsening storm surges, the rising sea level, which was making it so much worse. So they have built this project, which is really one of the most enormous investments of its kind anywhere in the world. It's this huge expanse of reclaimed land um, built by dumping, dredging up sand and dumping it into the ocean on the edge of Victoria Island, and it's all protected by this enormous sea wall. And it could potentially house hundreds of thousands of people. It would be really a new city tacked onto the existing one to some extent. Um, and I toured the development with Ronald Shaguri, who's the, the scion of the, the families in his mid-30s. Um, and he really saw this as a way to protect the long-term future of Lagos to build a new climate-secure part of the city that would also help to protect the rest of Lagos. But the trouble is that further down the coastline, the erosion has been getting worse for some small fishing communities that I visited. And as far as they're concerned, it's, it's been getting worse since Echo Atlantic was built. And when I spoke to academics about this and read some research on this, it does seem actually that there's a connection because the coastline for these communities further down the coast, they had actually been benefiting from the erosion of Victoria Island. The silt that was eroded from Victoria Island had been going to sort of protect their coastline. So this raises some really awkward questions. Were the people of Alpha Beach, this other community, were they entitled to expect that that flow of silt would continue and how many more interventions that we see to respond to climate change will be tilted in favor of the rich um, and potentially at the expense of, of lower income people because it's not just in lagos that large-scale infrastructure developments are going to be needed in response to climate change for low-lying cities all over the world new york miami all sorts of chinese cities in every part of the world you're going to need these interventions and these questions are going to come up again and again well that's what i wanted to ask you i mean what how did you decide where to go and where not to go so before starting my travels i spent a couple of years really researching the subject in as much depth as i could just reading and reading and reading about really um, interesting or compelling or shocking or inspiring responses to climate change in every part of the world. And I, I just gradually narrowed down my, my short list of places that I really wanted to get to. And it was important that there should be compelling stories within them. But also, I really wanted to 
make sure that each of these stories would shed light on one of the really important angles of climate change that I think people want to know about. Because I think all of us or most of us now realize that this is a desperately important subject, but it's difficult to know where to start with it. It can seem overwhelming and abstract and intimidating. And so it occurred to me that through old-fashioned reporting, through getting on the ground in interesting places and meeting interesting or inspiring people, through the stories of those people and places, that that could be the best way for some people to really get to grips with this story. Let's get a handle. One of the places that you obviously have to visit on this story was going to be always going to be the Maldives, um, uh, partly because they're beautiful. But you tell a lovely there was a lovely line in the in your in your notes about the Maldives it was about how the beaches got to be as white as they are, um, and you you tell us that it was you know because of the parrotfish eating all the coral um, and then having a poo, and the beaches are actually uh, the poo. Um, and it's white and it's coral that's passed through the alimentary canal of a parrotfish. But the more serious question is, you know, obviously the Maldives faces um, a, a seriously kind of like pressing and immediate problem. But you do um, remind us that um, after the last ice age for 15,000 years, 15,000 years B.C., the seas rose 120 meters. Now, we're not talking that kind of threat, surely. I mean, if all the ice in all the world were to melt now, how would the sea rise? Higher, um, much, much higher than that. Yeah, so, so, so this, is, this is the thing. Um, you know, we have to remember that that rise that I mentioned there happened over a very long time. It happened over thousands and thousands of years. And the change, that the sea level rise that we've set in motion now is actually going to be faster. So it will potentially, over thousands of years, if we don't do something drastic and um, you know, in, in response to the, the threat that we've set in motion, it, it would be higher than that. Um, and the problem with the Maldives, as I mentioned, is that the coral is dying. So whereas at the end of the last ice age, as the water rose, the coral rose with it. And so the islands that were formed by the um, by that coral they were they they survived the trouble now is that the coral is dying um the coral because of many, high temperatures but because of these rising sea temperatures so this is the problem 90% of the heat um that results from our pollution actually goes into the ocean that's that absorbs most of the heat the the atmosphere is of course rising in temperature but most of that heat energy is going into the ocean and coral, even though they've survived for millions of years, they're acutely sensitive to these temperature changes. They rely on this incredible symbiotic relationship with these tiny little organisms called zooxantelli. And when you have these surges in temperature that we're seeing more and more in coral reefs all over the world, that uh, relationship breaks down, that symbiosis breaks down, the zooxantelli are expelled from the coral, which then die. And dead coral will mean that as the sea rises, the islands like the Maldives will, will disappear. So it's an extraordinary thing to spend time in a place like the Maldives because really, as, as Conrad Stefan told me, a meter of sea level 
is is almost guaranteed. I mean, that is what leading climate scientists, many of them are now thinking. And the problem is that the Maldives, the very highest point of the whole of the Maldives is only two meters above sea level. And a lot of the, um, the, the country, its islands, got about a thousand islands, a lot of them are actually much lower than that. So you're going to see that this country in a hundred years from now will, will not exist in its current form. And the extraordinary thing is that you, you go there and people are just getting on with life because what else is there to do? So it's, it's, a, it's a rather surreal thing um, to, go, to spend time in a place that really is, is living on, on borrowed time. Yeah. Um, but Mohammed Nasheed, who's featured in the book, he's aware of this. He's trying to do something about this. And a key part of his work is trying to find out ways to save the coral. Yeah. So, you know, as human beings, we thinking trying to get anybody to think, you know, beyond their own lifetime, let alone their great-grandchildren's or, you know, a thousand years is beyond most of our sort of capacity to imagine. Um, what do the next 50 years look like? You know, you make the point that by 2050, the world's population will have reached, I think, 10 billion, you said. Um, uh, and that as people become wealthier, they'll also eat more and they will become, they'll buy more food at supermarkets and, and um, the demand will grow. And you also report an American study that calculates that climate change is already removing 35 trillion calories from the global sort of food chain every year. So we've got a rapidly rising population, a rapidly falling nutrition base. Um, and this is one of the things I took away from your book. The book is basically, basically about, seems to me, the future of food and the future of energy. Um, and there are other bits around it. But basically, unless we, unless we find a way to grow more food, we'll starve. Yeah, so I think, I think you're right in terms of the, the key drivers of the crisis and the key things that have to be tackled in addressing it. I think you're right. Food and energy are probably the top two. Um, now, typically, most people would think first of energy. Um, and one of the people that I met, um, who, uh, her name is Edda Aradotta. She's running this company in Iceland, an amazing company I featured in the book, which is as part of a joint venture. They're sucking carbon dioxide from the air, turning it into stone underground. This is one of the, the really exciting new technologies that we can see coming through, which, which could in principle have a very profound impact. And she made this deceptively simple but very important point that we already have all of the basic technologies that we need to tackle the emissions crisis and to a, to yeah. a large extent that that's through energy but on the food side there was a very interesting person featured in the book called pat brown and he's yeah. the founder of impossible, impossible foods food, which is one of the, the the biggest and most impactful what they call fake meat. They don't call it fake meats. They call it plant-based meat because as far as they're concerned, there's nothing fake about it. Um, but he actually argues that food is more important than energy. Um, either way, they're, they're both important. But in terms of how things go over the next 50 years, it's, it is going to get worse in some ways. There is going to be further rises in temperature. We, we've already, unfortunately, locked in um, 
further further rises in temperature, even if we stopped all carbon emissions today. But for me, that's not a reason to despair. It's a reason to get moving and to think about the contribution that each of us can make. And especially if we're in business, if we're in positions of economic or political influence, what can we do about this? Because how much worse it gets is absolutely up to us. But draw a line for people then from Pat Brown backwards. Um, From high temperature, he's producing plant-based meat. Um, It's very popular. It's in, you say, 30,000 restaurants, 20,000 stores across the US. So this obviously tastes pretty good. Um, uh, And if you can produce it more cheaply than, you know, real meat people, and it's more nutritious, nutritious, people will, will buy it. But what's the line the sort of temperature line, as it were, or climate line between him producing an impossible burger uh, or an impossible piece of bacon and the level of the, you know, the ocean. So he argues that the single most disastrous driver of climate change is the beef industry. Now, whether it's the worst or not, that can be debated, but it's certainly a big one. So why is that? Why is the beef industry so bad? Well, there are two reasons. For one thing, we've got over a billion cattle on the planet today. That's way more than could possibly be there through natural means. Um, We've been breeding them and breeding them and breeding them. And the trouble with all these cattle, they're they're lovely and cute and uh, and they, and they look very wise when they're chewing their cud, but they produce enormous quantities of methane from both ends yeah, of their alimentary canal yeah, um, yeah. And, and burp. And it's huge amounts of methane come from them. It's one of the major contributions to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Methane, as you know, is even more potent to greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And the other problem with the beef industry is the deforestation impacts. So as you know, from the Brazil chapter of my book, where I traveled through the Amazon, seeing the extraordinary and lawless um, growth of of the beef industry in the Amazon. Um, And this is being driven first and foremost by cattle ranching. People are not just burning down the Amazon for fun, they're burning it down to clear space for cattle pasture. That is what is the biggest driver for the loss of the Amazon. And of course, the Amazon is so desperately important to addressing the, to, 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 to restricting the extent of climate change because it's such an enormous and important climate sink. So, so there are these, these two ways in which beef is, is driving this. And so what Pat Brown is trying to do is to provide people with something that, as far as he's concerned, is better than animal-based meat. It's, it, it's tasty and nutritious, but it comes from plants. Um, and using a sort of genetically modified ingredient, now that's a whole other area of controversy, of course, but he uses this genetically modified ingredient to replicate the unique uh the unique flavor and appeal of of meat so that people often wouldn't know that what they're eating is not uh is not from an animal and the big question is will this take on it's already as you say it's already had very encouraging growth but still the vast majority of meat that's consumed in the world does come from animals so time will tell over the coming years how much it grows yeah so the, the Brazilian, the big Brazilian company producing most of this beef is a firm called JBS, I think it was, um, and it is now the second biggest food company in the world after Nestle's. I think 
you right. Um, That's right. Brazil has overtaken Australia as the biggest beef exporter in the world. So it's got a huge interest in in producing cows and and obviously you know must have huge abattoirs and slaughtering and and etc 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 and presumably the shipping of the the beef all around the world this is this is 1000 you go to one abattoir that does 1500 cows a day right um and um i don't know if you were able to stand and watch that but you you must have because you you spoke about i mean these these people are working at such machine like um precision that they're wearing chainmail aprons in order not to cut themselves you know if they miss a neck or a toe or a knuckle or something like that it must be it must have been absolutely frightening to watch knowing that the amazon is being cleared to make way for this firm to prosper um and cut and its many suppliers i know also that there's a big issue there was a story on bloomberg just the other day about jbs um uh, about clearing clearing um, Amazon forests in order to make way for grazing. Does it get to a point where the Amazon can't fight back and just gives up? I mean, you know, normally these tropical forests would have just grown on their own accord. Do they, do, do they get to a point where that's no longer possible? That's absolutely what scientists are warning of. Yeah, I mean, I spent time when I was in Brazil with a man called Carlos Nobre, who's one of the most prominent scientists in the world on on these issues, on the threats to the world's rainforest, in particular the Amazon. And he said that all the evidence suggests that there is the potential for the Amazon to reach what he calls a tipping point, where it starts shrinking under its own momentum. The way that the rainforest ecosystem works is one part of the rainforest serves to replenish another water is circulated between different parts of the rainforest. And the trouble is that because each part of the rainforest relies on other parts, if you destroy too much of it, then other parts that you haven't even directly touched will start dying off. And the scariest thing that Carlos Nobre told me was that in his opinion, we are getting very, very close to that tipping point he has estimated that once 20% of the Amazon is destroyed, then that process will begin. And we're currently at 17 or 18%. So it's getting very close. And what I saw on my travels through the Amazon was that it's getting worse. As you know, the current leader of Brazil is someone who is not by any stretch of the imagine an environmentally minded guy. He has taught very publicly about the need for greater economic exploitation of the Amazon. And people that I met on the ground, it was very clear that it was feeding through into the way that they behaved. There was one person who I feature in the book called Ezio, who I met when he was in the process of burning a whole stretch of the Amazon. And he was very happy to talk to me, give me his name, be photographed, um, appear in a video, because this sense of total impunity has set in. And one of the most worrying things about this for anyone um, who's eating meat um, in any other part of the world is that this is ending up in in supermarkets in South Africa, in the UK, all over the world, uh, meat from Brazil. And it's very difficult for companies like JBS, who I mentioned, to really be able to tell us that their meat does not come from these illegally deforested land. Um, So I think for as 
a man called Awapu put it to me, a, a member of um, the Uru Ewawao indigenous group. He said, people really need to think about how much Brazilian beef they eat. And I think we should all be very cognizant of the links between our consumption and the things that are happening on the ground very far away. And then in Israel, you come across somebody who's making meat, not making plant-based meat, but making real meat. Um, in a lab, in a bottle, but it's possible. Yeah, th th this was really extraordinary. So there's a woman called Shulamit Levenberg, and she is one of the foremost scientists in the world in developing um, heart tissue in the lab that can be used to help people with heart disease. And it was suggested to her, how about, as well as growing human heart tissue for cardiac patients, what about growing cow tissue, beef tissue um, for meat, growing steaks? And it took her some time to, to decide to go for this, but eventually she did because she was convinced of the ethical case for it. She was convinced that there will always be demand for this sort of food. And if it can be produced in a lab, then this could be a really much more sustainable way of doing it. And it sounds pretty spooky and Frankenstein-ish to, to many people, of course, you know, growing a steak in a bioreactor. But speaking to Shulamit and speaking to the CEO of this company that's been set up using her technology, Didier Tubia, they, they were telling me it might seem spooky. Um, but when you think about it, this could provide real, tasty, satisfying meat, but without all of the ethical problems that go with our conventionally produced meat. No animal cruelty. You have far less use of scarce resources. You don't have the methane coming out of it. You have much more efficient use of, of inputs because we were talking about the global demand for food. So much of the food that we produce actually goes to feeding livestock. And this would require far less in the way of protein inputs to produce this, this meat. But that is at an earlier stage of development. Um, what they call cultured meat, it's still very expensive. They haven't yet got it to commercial scale. They need regulatory approvals. But in the long run, I wouldn't be surprised to see it take off to some extent. You know, 100 years from now, you and I won't be around, but, but you know, we might be growing our own meat in the kitchen um, in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in a glass container of whatever. I, I don't see be. why that should be impossible. It's just fascinating. You talked about, yeah. No, absolutely. It would wreak havoc on obviously many cultures and societies around the world where cattle are a, a, a you know a currency almost. South Africa being one of them. Um, but these things, you know, would come in in time. You mentioned technologies at the start of this thing, and energy is where they all seem to mix. And you find Simon and this coming towards the end of this interview, but the U.S. seems to be just a bottomless pit of one you know, scientific adventurers and the money as well to fund them. Um, uh, you know, it, um, you, you, there is so much tech, energy research and technology being tried out, biomass, somebody, I think you said that Richard Branson had once flown one of his flights partly fueled by, by fuel um, produced from garbage in, in, in the States, right? Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Is there something, what, help us quickly talk about technology. Let's talk about nuclear for a start. So there's an effort now to produce nuclear power through, through fusion and not fission. 
right? The the old nuclear bomb on Hiroshima was a fission bomb, I presume. I think. That's right. I get confused. Yeah. So fusion fusion doesn't split things, it joins them. That's correct. Doesn't split atoms. And you have a guy who actually thinks that he can make this happen. It's never happened. Um, the sort of God particle doesn't exist, but he thinks that he can make it happen. And you say to him, how can you be sure? And he said, well, you know, the day before the Wright brothers flew, nobody was sure whether they would fly either. Um, what what makes America such a good place to be that kind of person in? Yeah, I think it's it's really extraordinary just the, the the ecosystem that they've got in the US. And it was interesting for me because I went to China as well. I was very fortunate to get into China just before the COVID closed the borders. Um, I think I was probably one of the last journalists to get in there in that way. Um, China, what's impressive about China is the speed and the scale. I mean, visiting BYD, for example, this enormous company, um, you, you know, that's seems to have taken over half of the city of Shenzhen. What's exciting about the US is the cutting edge innovation that you see coming through. So so you mentioned a couple of the companies there. So Lunds Attack, here's a company that's taking garbage and using it to make sustainable aviation fuel, which, as you say, Virgin Atlantic has already used for part of its tank on a transatlantic flight. There's a company called QuantumScape that's making next-generation batteries, which it says could be far more powerful and efficient than those currently on the market. Um, And then Commonwealth Fusion Systems, which is the fusion company you mentioned. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think they are very convinced or or very uh, confident based on the the, the high-powered computer modeling they've done of their technology. What's interesting about fusion power is fusion reactions have been going on for a very long time. It's it's long been possible to generate them in the lab. Um, But the problem is that they have always consumed a lot more power than they produce. So that's useless, of course, for a power plant. So the key point that everyone is trying to get to is that point of net energy generation, because that's when you can actually start producing power from the thing. And fusion power would just be an extraordinary leap forward. We'd have this unfathomably productive source of energy, which would be safe, much safer than nuclear fission. You'd have negligible quantities of nuclear waste left over by comparison. You'd have no chance of the sort of meltdown that we've seen at places like Fukushima. Um, And it would be zero carbon. So this would be an absolute game changer um, in terms of our response to climate change. Um, And what's interesting is that there's a project called ITER in France, which is, I think it's been $65 billion of of investment is is what's been estimated by the US government. It's a huge multinational sort of bureaucratic endeavor um, that's been going on for decades. And that is intended, the the idea is to bring together all these different um, academics and government agencies from around the world to hit that target for the first time. And what this chap, Bob Mumgard, the CEO of Commonwealth Fusion Systems, was saying is actually, we think a US startup on a much lower budget with our speed and expertise can do it can do it faster. So that's very, we'll, we'll see if they get there, by the way. They, they, they say they'll do it in the next few years. But the point is that there is something about that US ecosystem. You have the best uh, you have the best universities in the world. You have the most deep-pocketed and sophisticated venture capital investors in the world, and you have 
something there's something in the water there's some sort of um cultural disposition towards ambitious entrepreneurship you put these things together and i think there is an extraordinary amount of exciting entrepreneurship happening in this field in the US, but we need more of it and we need to put more welly behind it to achieve the scale. Of but isn't it extraordinary it? how fast things are moving? You know, it, it, you write up, you go to Australia and you write about an, a, a, a town in, um, uh, I think it was La Trobe in Victoria, where the coal is deteriorated to the extent now where basically they've got to shut down the mines and the coal power stations, but they've begun to produce a small amount of hydrogen um, uh, in La Trobe, I think. Um, when you were there, and I don't know whether you saw it, but just last week, uh, that first uh, shipload of hydrogen was was shipped out of Australia at, uh, and is now under at sea, I presume, on its way to Kobe in in Japan. Um, there's a lot of store being put in hydrogen, particularly in South Africa, but green hydrogen, presumably this is not green because it's made from coal. Um, green hydrogen would be made purely from renewable resources either you know sunlight or seawater um uh, does it have a future hydrogen or is it going to be blown away by something i i else? think there certainly will be a place um for hydrogen simply because there is so much investment going into it if you look at europe for example the european union has hydrogen right at the center of its green energy strategy but as you say the big question is what kind of hydrogen is this going to be? Because you have various people and companies and politicians around the world who are saying this could be a way for us to keep making money from fossil fuels through what's called blue hydrogen. What's blue hydrogen? Blue hydrogen is produced from fossil fuels and you capture the carbon dioxide and, and store it and you hope it doesn't leak away. Now, it can be made from coal, as is, is the case in that Australian project, or from natural gas. And that's what's happening, uh, starting to happen in Saudi Arabia. So I visited Saudi Arabia. I met Prince Abdulaziz, the energy minister. I visited uh, Aramco and meet the met the chief technology officer there. And they were saying, yeah, you know, we can continue to, to make money from natural gas through hydrogen. Now, personally, I think most people, most experts that I speak to in the market don't see much of a future for that kind of hydrogen um they would say actually it has to be green hydrogen which is produced by electrolysis from renewable energy it's going to be a big part of the the market and i think what's going to be really interesting to see is how far all of this is influenced by political considerations there are there are serious concerns about blue hydrogen based on leaks that can happen of the gas um, so based on science, you would say, well, it has to be green hydrogen. But what we've seen time and time again is that political considerations are sort of distorting what, what happens there. So if we stick to the science, yeah, I think there's, there'll, there'll be a big role for hydrogen and particularly green hydrogen. Simon, of all of the technologies that you saw while you were traveling, what excited you the most? You've, you mentioned voluntarily Greenland capturing, actually taking carbon dioxide and turning it into into ash or rock yeah well actually that that possible is the one, yeah so so in iceland yeah so, so so that i think is the one certainly that intrigued me the most it's it's one that was that was new to me um so so what happens there you've got a startup based in switzerland these two young german engineers have set up a company called climbworks and they make these boxes that can suck carbon dioxide out of the air 
And then they've teamed up with this startup in Iceland. They've built this operation. And the startup in Iceland has technology where it takes carbon dioxide, dissolves it in water, pumps it underground into the Icelandic bedrock, where it gets transformed into stone. So you're sort of reversing the whole carbon cycle, where in the past we've been taking a solid lump of coal, burning it, turning it into atmospheric CO2. Now you're turning that into reverse, taking that CO2 from the air and turning it into underground inert stone. Now, this is controversial, I should say, because there are people who say that this will reduce the pressure on us to reduce our emissions. And we can just say, well, we'll keep on doing what we're doing and we'll just rely on this technology bailing us out in the future. Now, that must not happen. But it's also true that we have too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today. We need to do something to bring it down. Personally, I think there will be some role for these technologies, and it's going to be fascinating to see if they can be rolled out at scale. Well, you've provided um, the world, in a way, with a hell of a lot to talk about in your in 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 your book in in Race for Tomorrow, and I really um, I'm so glad you wrote it, and I'm so glad uh, that I read it. I do want to ask you what a moral money editor does for the FT uh, for a day's work. What what do you cover? Yeah, so Moral Money is a platform that was set up um, a couple of years ago within the FT, and I just um, joined as editor a few months ago. So it's aimed at covering the intersection of environmental and social issues with business and finance. What is the what is really the future of capitalism when it comes to addressing all of these deep-lying flaws that we're so well aware of in terms of contributions to the climate crisis, in terms of all these social issues that, that come up time and time again to do with business and finance. And this is now an increasingly core issue for us and for our readers. So Moral Money, it's it's published on the FT website, and it's, a, it's also a newsletter that comes out three days a week into your inbox. So I would encourage all, certainly all FT subscribers who are, who are listening, please do sign up and um, we'll, we'll try to keep you apprised of what is, in my opinion, in many ways, the biggest story in the world at the moment. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Simon Mundy, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, uh, and um, yeah, man, I hope we, hope we meet again soon. Uh, if not here, then there. Um, but it's been great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Peter. It was really a pleasure.